Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Jonathan Whitelaw who is an author, a journalist and a broadcaster. After working on the front line of Scottish politics he moved into journalism. Subjects he has covered have varied from breaking news, the arts, culture and sport to fashion, music and even radioactive waste with everything in between. Jonathan's also a regular reviewer and talking head on shows for the BBC Hellcore and The Man in the Dark are his second and third novels following his critically acclaimed debut, Morbid Relations. Jonathan, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure to be here. Now, even just in that we kind of potted introduction, you know, writing plays a big part in your professional life as well. But you obviously have a wide range of interests, as you say, from breaking arts to sport, culture, music and radioactive waste. And I mean, is that just obviously some of that? Is that just the life of a journalist that you you have to write in order to to get printed and, and to work? Absolutely. It's a kind of chicken and egg uh, syndrome for me. It's one of those things where I don't know if I was ever interested in all these things and had to be to put food on the table as a journalist in the 21st century, or am I really into these things now because because I'm a journalist or, or did I become a journalist because I was interested in these things? And it's so long ago, it feels like 100 years ago that I can't remember, to be perfectly honest with you. It's one of those things, I think my journalism has predominantly, well, I say predominantly, 99% has been online. And when you're an online journalist, you genuinely don't know what's going to come across your desk next. It's, it's just the nature of the beast, unfortunately. Or, or fortunately, actually. I mean, you know, it's there are days where it can be a challenge. But there are also great days where you can be sitting doing a breaking news story. You can then be doing something about politics. You could then move from that on a showbiz story. And then from showbiz, you can be moving on to travel or money or anything really it, it genuinely varies from from story to story it, it's something that i've always enjoyed because it means that you no two days are ever the same and they genuinely are never the same i know that that i know that's an, an old phrase that kind of journalists tend to use a lot but certainly in my career and working online it's it's been a case of yeah you, you genuinely don't know what's going to come next i suppose in terms of journalism it is very much moving towards online platforms you know you can see just even in terms of traditional print media the decline in, in sales yep. as well because more people are consuming their news and information and entertainment online and as you say that's where you do predominantly all your journalism that's just the nature of the industry now absolutely yeah it has been for a while now and it's not to say that there's no future for print journalism obviously there's always going to be room for journalism and, and, and multifaceted journalism one thing that i always amaze me in, in the level of publications that exist for seemingly i don't want to use the term innocuous but seemingly fringe subjects you know you, you look at the construction business for example the construction industry you know you find uh, uh, magazines that are designated to wooden trusses that are used to build houses but not just one magazine, you know, it's not just Wooden Trust magazine or what have you. There'll be three or four or five of these magazines that are all competing against each other with a very, very niche market. Now, depending on the, the, the kind of demographics of who it is that's going to be reading that, there probably will be a place more for that type of print journalism, the actual hard magazine, as opposed to maybe an online market, given the, given the kind of nature of, of the readership. But in terms of the, the wider news, the news landscape, it's, it's becoming a, a digital first attitude across newsrooms. Because of interest, but maybe in terms of that, the idea of print versus maybe online or electronic things, maybe kind of 
touching that in the course of the, the podcast in terms of particularly with the kind of physical book versus ebooks, etc., or audio books. There was one thing that I mentioned just right at the start of the, the introduction, which intrigued me, which you, you moved into journalism following you'd worked on the front line of Scottish politics. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Certainly. I, well, I was a media officer in the Scottish Parliament when I, when I finished my, uh, my degree. That was very exciting, very different. They allow you to say what I, party? I remember. Uh, yes, I've worked for the Conservative Party. I know that that's a bit of a hoodoo in the in in Scotland, but yeah, there'll be people there'll be people now throwing things at their podcast. Two thirds of your your listenership, exactly. My sales plummet. Listen, it was one of those. It was an opportunity. It was a fantastic opportunity that I had, and I was I was working genuinely on the front line of it. We had a uh, when I worked there. Well, it was a decade ago now. You know, where the Scottish election, which is very, very different, a very di- different atmosphere to be in somewhere like Holyrood during something like that. I mean, you know, as someone that comes straight out of university and didn't know, for one of a better expression, his arse from his elbow, it was a very, very stark wake-up call introduction to, to how things work. I've, I've got nothing but fond memories from my time and kind of working behind the scenes in, in politics. And within all, everything else that you're, you're doing and you've been working on, you've still you've managed to, to write three novels as well. So the kind of people will probably wonder what's the secret of have you discovered some secret of time? No, <laughs> no, is don't sleep. That's, that's my that's my best advice. It's strange because my my sort of writing practice, my writing procedure has changed in the five years since my first book came out. Morbid Relations came out in twenty fifteen. So at that point, I was working in Glasgow, but I was staying in Edinburgh. So I used to have two hours unfiltered writing time, five days a week, six days a week sometimes. Um, so I used to get on the train, would plug in earphones on, laptop out, and I would be writing for the 40, 50 minutes of the journey. Go do a shift, come back, exactly the same, coming home, and that was it. You know, two hours, very, very intense writing. I haven't written that way since. I think it worked. I think for Morbid Relations, I think the kind of characters and the type of setting and the story that it was, I think it worked ideally for it. For my Hellcorp novels, I don't want to say a bit less regimented, but it's certainly not as, you know, blinkers on and sitting doing two hours non-stop writing. It's, it's been a bit more maybe across the course of the day. I mean, it's, it's one of those things I always, I, I'm kind of often asked, what advice would you give for people that are, that are trying to kind of get to write and what have you? And I always say to them, you've got to do something that works for you. There's no point in setting yourself a goal of saying, I'm going to have to write 2,000 words today. And you know that when you start doing it, you're not going to get anywhere near it. You know, if you sit down and go, do you know what? I'll start, if I do 50 words today or I do 100 words today, then fine, that's great. You can build upon it. I've learned that though by just writing. I mean, that's it. The best advice I suppose I could always give anybody is just write. No doubt in the the course of the podcast, we'll talk a bit more about your novels, but in terms of the format, obviously, it's the same five questions. And the first question I always ask people is their favourite book from childhood. And the one that you've eventually plumped for out of lots of candidates is SIO Trot by Roald Dahl. Why did that one get to the top of the pile? It's a tough old question because, you know, you, I was constantly reading when I was growing up and you read so much and you read so much, so many varied things because it's all new to you when you're young, obviously. You've got those sort of twin pillars of school who are encouraging you to read X, Y, and Z types of books, and then you've got your own preference, which you know you're growing into. One author that sort of remained across everything was was Roald Dahl for me, and I remember distinctly being in, in Aberdeen one New Year. My family had gone up there for New Year. I got George's Marvelous Medicine. It was like January second or something. Or, or we'd gone at the bookshop and I got it, and I loved the cover of it. And that was it. That was the first. That was the first Roald Dahl book that I had. And then you know I read them all. I, I went through them. By the time I got to like first year in school, Boy, which was his sort of, you know, semi-fictional, semi-autobiographical uh, novel, was on the reading list for book reviews. 
which was great. So again, it was sort of marrying those two together. But I always remember SEO Trot I got as a birthday present from um, my aunt. Maybe my 11th birthday, 10th or 11th birthday. It's not that big a book. No, it's certainly not one of his bigger ones in terms of kind of length. But I just found the story so magical. So it's about it's about this kind of older couple who live above each other, and there's a kind of unrequited love element of it. Now you, you don't know any of that when you're sitting reading at ten years old. You're doing it for the silly words, and you're doing it for all the kind of silly humour, which are which are so so sort of predominant throughout Roald Dahl's writing. But there was just something about it, and I always remember when I realised that SEO Trot is tortoise backwards. That sort of opened up this this sort of it was a sort of creative awakening for me. I know that that sounds like a dreadfully pretentious thing to say, but it's the idea that you know words could be something they weren't just on the page. You know, they, they could have a meaning, and you could tailor it, and you could play about with it, and you could have that sort of creative fun with anything that you sit and you write down. And then, of course, obviously there was there was another there was another novel actually. I think it was a novella by Roald Dahl that came out, I think the, the Vicar of Nibbleswick, which was, was actually for charity, and it was about a dyslexic vicar. And of course, there's all the, the kind of fun where he mixes God up with dog and things like that. That all sort of kind of came together all at once for me. And for that reason, it's, uh, I still hold kind of very, very special memories of, of that book. When you sent through your choices, it wasn't actually a title of Roald Dahl's that I was familiar with. And I hadn't realised, yeah. I think it was the last book that was published before he died. Please. So it was quite intriguing. It was almost like, because you, you know that there's some authors you think, you kinda, even if you haven't read all their books, you know or you're familiar with the titles. And it, it intrigues me to, to go away. And even as an adult, I'm, once I started reading about it, I went, ah, that's tortoise backwards. So. That's exactly it. That's one of the many, many reasons why someone like Roald Dahl is still a, a, an enduring figure in our literary world. There are so many different layers and there are so many clever elements of, of his writing that, that you can enjoy on, on a personal level, on a wider level, you know, something like the Twits. Everybody knows the story of the Twits. Everybody knows the BFG story and stuff. But when you sit down and you read it, there's still that intimacy that you've got almost as if he's reading to you. You know, that, that's an undeniable talent of the man and, and a testament to his writing ability and, and obviously his, his legacy. It's a great skill, and very few writers can do it, to write to that audience, because I suppose that's at the age where we're devouring books, but also just to engage people to the point where they just want to read the next one and the next one, that, as you say, they're in the books, but then they stay with you forever. I remember my, uh, my mother tells a story about my primary one teacher, Mrs. Arthur, bless her, who said to my mum, it doesn't matter if he's reading the Beano, just get him to read. And that's something that stuck with me nearly 30 years later. It's still the same. You know, I've still got that attitude. A lot of people can be quite hoity-toity about what they read and they won't read certain genres and they don't, you know, they, they look down on kids' books and they look down on young adult books. And the classic one is, thankfully, we're moving away from it. But, you know, the graphic novel, it took 20, 30, 40 years for graphic novels and comics to get the, the literary standing that they deserve to have. And, and I, yeah, it always rings true, what Mrs. Arthur said. I suppose in one way that's brilliant advice for children because you just want to devour everything and as you, you know, as we'll see with the other choices, you get things you, you know, certain genres you like, there's certain authors you like, but it's always better not to have a closed mind, whether as a child or as an adult, because Absolutely. for that reason, there's always another book that you might discover in a genre that you, you know, if you turn Absolutely. your nose up at sci-fi or crime or romantic novels or whatever, then... I was having a discussion with somebody the other day and they were saying, I can't remember what it was about, but it, it was like the idea of, you know, you sometimes talk to people about music and they'll say, you know, I don't really like the Beatles. A, I don't trust people that don't like the Beatles. I think their ears are painted <laughs> on. But then you'll say to somebody, and they'll say, I don't really like the Beatles, but I take it to it's not a bad song. And ah, yesterday's not a bad song. Before you know it, and you say, well, you must, and it's the same with, but you can't say I don't like crime novels or I don't like sci-fi novels. It's, that's just nonsense. Do you know, funnily enough, Rolling Stone magazine released 
an updated version of their 500 greatest albums of all time and I've undertaken a, a task of uh, listening to every one of them all the way through where it's capable so I, I think I started about two, two weeks ago so I'm only I'm only at like four but I haven't reached the 20 album stage yet because a lot of them are double, double albums and stuff like that but how, I mean, how long do you reckon that will take you? Oh, I don't know. I don't want to put a time scale on it and I'm not religiously making sure that I'm sitting down at seven o'clock every night to listen to an album. But do you know what? It's one of those things, actually, do you know something? During lockdown, I've been listening to a lot more music, as I think a lot of people have, just given working from home and all the rest of it, you've got the opportunity to do it a lot more. But I, I completely agree because one of the things that I've noticed going through these albums, a lot of them, I don't think I've come across an album that, a, that I owned yet on it in the first 20 or b might have even listened to all the way through if not i've only genuinely out of maybe you know there's a, there's a couple on there i mean arcade fires funeral is, is 500 and of course there's there's a couple of big tunes that were there sort of massive hits but the rest of the album i'd never heard i think the last one that I listened to there was was cheryl crow's 1996 cheryl crow and of course that's got all her kind of mid-90s hits on it but again it's a really really accomplished album because there's 12 tracks on it and stuff firstly and foremost i'm really really enjoying being able to sit down and not have the pressure of worrying about what to put on next. Knowing that I can just put the album on, listen to it back to front, and that takes up 40 minutes, an hour, two hours, or what have you. It's exactly the same with literature. You know, and as a writer, you pick up influences, and, and you pick up style, and you pick up things that people are writing. It might not necessarily be in what you're writing, if it's crime, or it's sci-fi, or romance, or what have you. But you're seeing what people are writing, and you're consuming that, and, and it's, a, it's a living thing, you know, that, and never does any harm to see what your rivals are doing as well. We're on to the second question now in the podcast, and that's your favourite book from kind of teenage university formative years. And there's a couple that you've chosen. First one was The Diary of Adrian Mole by Sue Townsend. But then the other one you also mentioned was The Colour of Magic by Terry Pratchett. What, what was it about? First of all, The Diary of Adrian Mole. I got The Diary of Adrian Mole, I think I must have been about 12 or 13 when I got it. And of course, it's become this absolute champion of that age. When you're growing up and you're that age, you're desperate to find your voice. Everyone is. To, to quote my mother, you don't know if you're Shrove Tuesday or Sheffield Wednesday. And having something like the Diary of Adrian Mole by Sue Townsend, to sit and read it, and I think it would be a very, very lucky, odd coincidence to be going through the exact same situations that Adrian goes through, because obviously it's, it's all exalted for the purposes of storytelling. But that companionship, having that kind of fictional character who's going through the turmoils and thinking the same way. To my shame, you know, I haven't actually gone back to it. And I haven't read the subsequent ones because I think there's about five or six of them as, as he grows up. I, I just remember distinctly reading it and going, do you know what, that's funny because I was thinking exactly the same way about, okay, it might not have been exactly the same thing, but it was that voice, it was, it was that other person in the room who was talking directly to you and was talking to you about something that you could completely relate to. And, you know, again, as someone who's 12, 13, 14, you know, you're discovering these things for the first time. And from a literary point of view, it's written so well and it's written, you know, the idea of Sue Townsend getting in the headspace of a 13 and three quarter year old Adrian Mole is remarkable. There's one bit that I always remember about him painting the, so his bedroom, I seem to recall, has got, I think, naughty wallpaper and he tries to paint it black, but the paint's not thick enough or he doesn't put like a, a base layer or something like that. So he can still see naughty and big ears shining through the black paint. Just that sort of that youthful energy to cast away everything that you once loved growing up and become your own person, become a rebel. You know, it's black paint. It's not purple paint. It's not new wallpaper. It's black, obviously. You know, and uh, it's deep and meaningful. But you know, Noddy's still smiling through the paint. I thought that particular bit stuck with me for the twenty odd years that it's taken me to not read it again. 
the other book that I'd mentioned earlier on, and this touches on, as you mentioned when we were corresponding, about you started to read more sci-fi and fantasy. The book was The Colour of Magic by Terry Pratchett. And again, when I was just doing a wee bit of research, this is, I think that's the first book in the Discworld series. And what, what I always think is remarkable, sometimes you're in researching these books. So, for example, across his, all his books, he sold over 70 million copies worldwide. The very first print run of The Colour of Magic was 506 copies. And if you're sitting with one of those 506 copies, quids in, I think. Absolutely. That's the nature of this industry, I think, is that there are so many people doing such great work, but people like your Pratchett's and your Sue Townsend and your Roald Dahl's, they are one in a million. There's a reason that writers like myself pick them as being being our heroes, because they are genuinely heroic in, in their work on the page and off it. Terry Pratchett, obviously, no longer with us, unfortunately. Very, very sadly, no longer with us. And again, another, another writer who's left a, a huge black hole in that community. I must have been about 17 or 18. I think I'd just left, maybe just left school when I got The Colour of Magic. And obviously I'd grown up in the kind of 90s. They were coming out all the time, but I'd never quite gotten into it. I'd, I'd never quite seen what the big thing was. And, and actually, do you know what? Reflectively, being that kind of 17, 18 year old undergraduate is very much that kind of humour, but still maybe a little bit more a little bit more accessible maybe than someone like Douglas Adams, the Hitchhiker's books and stuff like that, who, who are maybe a little bit more that undergraduate humour feel. What I loved about it and what I continue to love about it is just the, the absolute depth of this world that he created. So cleverly put together, a, a wonderful way with words and being that kind of late teenager and again having something that you were literally laughing out loud when you were reading it. It's very, very easy for me to reflect on it now, but I didn't realise at the time that, you know, you're getting that sort of depreciative humour that comes across in pretty much every page. There's one thing about Terry Pratchett books that I've always loved, and, it's, and it is genuinely something that I've tried to emulate in, in my own writing, is that he always has a problem with authority. He's always known how to manifest and write so eloquently by bringing that authority down. You know, the, the disc world is his universe. That he, he could shine a light on the, the pomposity of the ruling class and the political elite and stuff like that but in turn bring them down. And, and of course, there's, you know, there's, there's obviously massive reflections into real life now and back, obviously, as and when the books come out. But that was always the great thing about Terry Pratchett and his writing is that there was always a wonderful sense of justice about it. There's always a wonderful sense of social justice about the Discworld novels. And being able to have that, have a, have a real pompous, whether it's a university dean or it's a head of the Night Watch or, or, or anyone, and be able to chop them down a few pegs it's proper, you know, laugh out loud and fist raised in the air, cheering moments throughout throughout all the books, and, and that one in particular that that serves as a that serves as a wonderful introduction to. Because I have to admit, I've never, I've actually never read any of Terry Pratchett's oh, novels. There are a lot of them, and like any series, I think it's one of those things that it builds upon its own lore. And and it's not to say that it's not to say that they're all fantastic, but I, I think particularly the early ones, there still remains a, a sort of a, a universal love of the the first kind of three or four. You know, sometimes, and again, I've spoken to people, so for example, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, people, I know I've spoken to people before would have said, sometimes it's a certain age that you read those books and you really engage. And if yep. you wait too long, it, it doesn't, obviously, you, you come yeah. at it from a different point of view and you might not yeah. get immersed in it the way you would, when, as you say, when you're just left school. Yep. I would agree with that. And I think because the series lasted or has lasted so long, you find that people have grown up with the books. So by the time you get to the 20th novel in the series, they've been getting released intermittently every two years or what have you. So when you, you might have read that when you were, you know, when you were 16, by the time you get to the 20th book, you're probably going to be closer to 30. And it's, it's, a, it's a linear kind of scope. Yeah, it, it definitely had and remains his writing in particular. And, and that book absolutely was a very, very big influence on, on me as a writer and as a reader, really. 
you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Finney, and my guest, Jonathan Whitelaw. And Jonathan, we are on to the third book in your choice for the podcast today, and that's a book you would recommend to anyone. And at first, as I say, when you were you replied, at first you said, yes, I will trot again, but you know, that's cheating. So you've gone for another big novel in terms of science fiction, and that's uh, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Again, another uh, book that I read when I was, I think it was second year, and it was on our school reading list to do a book review, which in reflection, I mean, bless our teachers, they clearly had very, very high hopes as to as to what we were going to get from this completely high concept, out of your nut sci-fi epic. I, I tried my best with it, but on reflection, I don't think I quite captured the, the sort of magnificence or indeed the kind of scale of what's going on in the book. But again, one of those things that one of those novels that I, that I returned to in my early 20s, I think it was, and ended up reading the other, I think there's four of them, and I read the whole series. It's one of those books that actually, I think, as hard as it is to imagine, I actually think it's underrated as a novel because it's constantly likened with the film, with the Stanley Kubrick film. And Kubrick worked with Arthur C. Clarke uh, at the time when they were making the movie in the 60s. And of course, the film's gone on to become this sort of bastion of science fiction and movie making because it was such a kind of landmark. It was a blockbuster before people knew what a blockbuster was. I've always found the book to be better, not necessarily just that old debate, you know, that old chestnut is the book better than the film. You know, a lot of people can always champion that to be the case. I actually think the book is a better story than the, the, the movie. The reason being that I think the novel is given a... I think Arthur C. Clarke obviously is considered one of the kind of grandfathers, the great elder statesman of science fiction, with a massive, massive back catalogue of books that range from the innocuous to the massive scale and what it means to be be a human being and stuff. But I think the nature of what the story is, well, it's exactly the same story in the movie. The format of being able to read it and get a bit more insight into the, the background of, you know, where the HAL 9000 computer comes from. And it doesn't spend as much time with the visuals of passing through the monolith, the Stargate. And it almost, dare I say, it makes a bit more sense because people that are familiar with the film, the last scene is obviously of this embryo watching over the Earth. You're pretty much after the kind of three-hour sensory assault that the film is. You can scratch your head, but actually within the context of the book, without, you know, well, it's a fairly major spoiler, but you've got Dave Bowman, who, who's the astronaut who's on the Discovery. He then passes through. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for human evolution, and that's what these monoliths are. It's an alien technology that's sent to humanity to kind of push us on our way to the next step of evolution, and that's what he becomes. He becomes this sort of this almost angelic-type figure who's sent back to watch over the Earth. And that's explained a lot better in, in the novel and the description of it's a little bit easier to read. But I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the film. The film is, is a joy and a splendor to watch. And again, when you take all the kind of cultural elements of it and, and how big an impact it's had on movie makers and, and movie going public since it came out in the 60s. It also features Leonard Rossiter. He has a small cameo. Whenever I'm talking about it, I always have to get that in because people forget that he wasn't just Rigsby. He's in it, right? I think he's about 20, 30 minutes in. He's a hotel guest. But yeah, it's a great book, it's a great novel, it's a great read, and I would always recommend it. As far as the podcast is concerned, the book is always better than the film. One thing you were saying, you came to this book because it was a kind of reading choice at school, and was that, when you were at school, were you given a choice of books and then you could select something? The teacher wasn't actually selecting the book for you? First, second and third year, I think it was, were given a, a list of maybe about 20 books. You had to pick one of those books and then you would do a book review on it and then you'd have to do a presentation and stuff. You know, it was, it was like the first term project. First year was I picked Boy, but it had things like Animal Farm on it. Uh, a friend of mine who shall remain nameless to protect the guilty, he famously picked up Animal Farm because it was the smallest on the list. But of course, 
it's the smallest on the list, but it's not by any way, shape or form the easiest read to get through or indeed talk about or review. He also did the same, I think, the next year. It may have been the Diary of Miss Jean Brody was on the list. And again, it was the smallest book on the list and he picked that. I still don't think he read them. Because it's interesting when, because obviously I'm somewhat older than you. So when we were at school, we had a class book that we teacher would choose a novel, we would all read it and then we would walk through it that way. We weren't given any autonomy. In some respects, that seems harder for the teacher because then they're having to deal with, they could get 20 different books and then having to deal with each pupil on an individual basis. The other side of that is, I think it allows you then to go off and pick a book that catches your eyes as opposed to just being forced to read something. Absolutely that. And my stepdad used to set a bit of a challenge over the summer holidays because we were given the book list. Well, I don't know if we were given it. I don't know if he asked for it or we were given it before the next year. So he would usually get me and, and my brother to read at least two of the books already on the list by the time we went back to school. Partly it was to get us to read more. Secondly, I think it was to try and get us ahead of the ahead of the class and kind of free up time to do other stuff. Because obviously when you're in first, second, third year, you're getting bombarded with loads and loads of subjects and stuff like that. So it was it was a multifaceted tactic. But listen, it worked. I mean, you know, I, I read The Railway Children one summer and absolutely adored it. King Solomon's Minds was another one that, that I read. And I, again, these are all books that you're reading and you don't realise it until you're older. This is you, exactly as I said earlier on, it's you're finding your voice, you're finding finding the voice and you're finding what you like to read. And then in turn, as a writer, you're finding out what you like to write and what you'd like other people to read. It's almost like telepathic, this podcast, because that actually leads perfectly into my next question, because <laughs> you had touched on, and I think it was Terry Pratchett, in terms of that kind of the writing, the style, the kind of construct of the book and how it influences you as a reader, but as a writer. And then you just mentioned that again. So... I'd mentioned right at the start, you've you've written three novels already. In terms of the style of writing, what kind of, what kind of novels are they? So Morbid Relations, which was my debut, that's very, very different to my Hellcorp novels. Morbid Relations is a, a kind of dark comedy that looks at family life. It's about a failing stand-up comedian, uh, Rob Argyle, who returns back up to Glasgow from the big smoke after his mother dies. And he's reunited with his two estranged sisters and their families. And they essentially have to decide what happens with the family estate with hilarious results, hopefully. That's very, very different to my Hellcorp novels, which essentially see the devil long for a holiday, but God not trusting him. Why, why would you trust the devil? And so gets him to solve mysteries uh, in the interim. The first Hellcorp novel is essentially that. So uh, the devil's transported to modern day Glasgow, uh, stuffed into a, a human suit, human form. And he has to solve the murder of a, a, a man that took 40 years to die. The second one, The Man in the Dark, is slightly different. The kind of core who done it is the devil trying to find out a woman that's been kidnapped by an international terrorist. But while he's on the sort of mortal realm, Brutus and Cassius, those treacherous Romans, are conspiring to overthrow him as the king of the underworld. So he's got to deal with that as well as the, you know, the, the kind of juicy whodunit that's presented to him. So they're very, very different. I mean, still, it's still an element of that dark humour that, that runs throughout it. And again, that's something that's come to me through my reading choices, particularly your Pratchett's, particularly your kind of Neil Gaines, the, these writers that do such fantastic work in that sort of urban fantasy, thriller, mystery, crime, mishmash, really. And I'm guessing, obviously, that's three novels you've already written. I'm guessing, although although we've established you don't have that uh, tour round trip every day between Glasgow and Edinburgh, I, I take it you're still always working on, on I your am, own work? I am. We've got a charity short story set in the Hellcorp universe. That's coming out on October 19th, Halloween-themed. So we're raising money, myself and the publisher are raising money for the Samaritans. All the proceeds are, are going to them. We unfortunately had a, um, one of the other authors in my publisher are being he took his own life last year so it's a great cause obviously it's all year round not just a Halloween week 
we had another charity short story again set in the Elcorp universe uh, the Friday before Christmas that was out last December this one the new one the deal is out for Halloween and again it's Halloween themed and it's one of those things that one of the very bit lucky in, in the sense that I've got quote unquote an audience and something I cause like the Samaritans obviously they like like every other charity has been hit hard this year given the, the kind of COVID pandemic and being able to give a voice and, and, and do a little bit is quite important not just given the, the kind of obviously the personal circumstances that happened to us at the publisher but also I, I always see that writing is historically has been described as a lonely business but to be perfectly honest with you since my debut I've had nothing but fantastic support a great community of writers publishers agents yourself as well Paul you know podcast it, it's all out there there's loads and loads of people out there and and if, if I can put across that message that, you know, you know what, there's always someone to talk to and there's, there's a very, very willing and open community out there, then hopefully it can make a, make a bit of a difference to people that might, might be feeling that, feeling the pinch. And in terms of the story, the best place for people if they want to, to get the story, to, to read the story, but also to support, uh, raise money for Samaritans, would it be through Urbane's website? Would that be the best place? To... Um, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be on the Urbane website. It'll also be on Amazon. It's called The Deal. Well, we are on to your fourth book choice in the podcast. That's a book you couldn't be paid to read again. Now, there's two that you mentioned. The First, The Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. And then the other one was uh, Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. I have noticed, however, just before we talk about that, is that so far, every author that you've chosen is no longer with us. I don't know if that's just a coincidence. It wasn't until I started talking about them that I read Well, you know, there you go. They can't, they can't come after me. I feel a bit, this, this is a bit of a rotter question, Paul. I, I, I kind of feel that like I was getting set up here, but that's... Well, that's to be it. fair, you, I think you've, you've almost, whether by design or by accident, I've said this a couple of times in the podcast, Professor Willie Maley, who teaches up at Glasgow University, when he was yeah. coming on the podcast, and the bit, only bit of advice his wife had given him was it came to that question, choose an author that's dead, for that reason you don't want to upset. <laughs> because you... That way, you know, it's a, it's a, a lot of writers find it difficult because, as you know, as a writer, yeah, you yeah. put everything into your book and the last thing you want is for somebody to say, ah, I couldn't be paid to do it again. Yeah. Interestingly, your, your first choice, The Man in the High Castle, uh, I read it a few years ago. I don't remember it having been either particularly blown away or, or negative, but I, I did love the, the TV series that, that came out on Amazon. Yeah. This is a sort of long-standing gripe, long-standing gripe that I've got with Philip K. Dick, and I'm sure his estate won't be all that pleased, but they, they know where to find me. And feel free if they want to come on and name all my books. It's quite all right. <laughs> I should also say the caveat is that, you know, Philip K. Dick cannot be denied his place within science fiction. One particular issue that I've always had is that I've always loved the story ideas. I've always loved the concept, but the actual execution just has never ticked my box, unfortunately. And that novel in particular, and again, the TV series was great. The show was fantastic because exactly that, it was an adaptation and it's, it's fundamentally taking what the story is and presenting it in TV. I found it a struggle to read. I just wanted, where's the chase and let's cut to it because I love the concept of it. I, you know, I love alternate history. I love that type of fiction. I love the playing about with history and histrionics and, and seeing just how awful things genuinely could be or could have been if a slight change had, had ever happened. I just found that his writing style just completely bogged it down for me. And I've, I've tried multiple times to go back to not just Man in the High Castle, but all, all his other stuff. And it just seems to permeate across it. I've genuinely just put it down to it's like a square peg in a round hole for me when reading it. Again, cannot fault the concept, not just of that novel, but all of his, all, all of his novels, but it's just the execution for me. Well, do you know, it's funny, given that what we were saying earlier on about the, the novel was always better than the, than the film. There are always exceptions to the rule. <laughs> always. Always the case. There we go. We set ourselves up. Well, I tell you, the, I tell you one where I think 
because I'm always of the view that the, the book's better than the film in general, but yeah. I don't know if you've ever read The Graduate. The film is brilliant, I think partly because of the soundtrack. That's one where I prefer the, the film to the book. Because that's the thing, like, I mean, I read, I read in particular, The Man in High Castle, I read it a long time before there was even an idea of the TV series, and actually watching the TV series wasn't how I pictured it at all. And even if I went back to try it again, uh, I still don't think I would picture it. But again, I don't know how much that is to do with the actual storytelling of it. The other book that you mentioned was Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Interestingly, he's, a, he's another author that I, I struggle with. I just find that's the style of his writing. I find yeah. it really, really hard going whenever I've tried to read through his books. I always feel bad for it because with Hemingway and Philip K. Dick, widely accepted as two of the greatest writers, certainly of their generations, if not of all time. And here I am going, oh, I didn't really like it, I don't really like rights. <laughs> Who am I to say that? But listen, that's the, going back to what we're talking about with the albums and the music and stuff, that's the great thing about literature. That's the great thing about writing is that, you know, there are different styles out here. While I might not be a massive fan of it and, and find it a difficult read and find it hard going, I still acknowledge it as a part of cultural zenith, that type of thing. Again, without sounding absolutely preposterous and, and completely pretentious. But again, I think his writing is very much of his time another person that lived an extraordinary life and saw and did a, a whole load of, of incredible things that the majority of us can only dream of or indeed have nightmares about and that's reflective in, in his work and, and it's a substantial weighty collection of work but again it just didn't do it for me I just couldn't get into it I couldn't get into a rhythm of it I couldn't lose myself in it and, and I think that's one thing about fiction no matter what type of fiction it is whether it's rom romance or historical fiction or sci-fi or fantasy or literary fiction you've got to be sucked in you know as a reader you've got to be kind of brought into it and for me as a reader if that doesn't happen then, then I'm always going to struggle with it and it's, it's not to say it's right it's not to say it's wrong of course it's just an opinion and I'm sure that there are plenty of people that absolutely adore both those novels and good on them for doing that it just doesn't take my box. Well, do you know, it's interesting. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier on about how, you know, that advice that your primary school teacher had said is just read anything as long as you're reading. But also, I think as you get older, sometimes there's a sense of there's a hierarchy of what is worthy literature. And if you're reading something that's considered a classic, that's great. But if you're just reading something that you've maybe picked up in the supermarket, nah, that's just, that's trashy, which I don't believe in. Going to the, the choice of these books also means you should be allowed to, you could pick up a book, let's say a Hemingway book, and absolutely love it. But you're equally allowed to pick it up and go, that's not for me. As you say, it Absolutely. doesn't mean such a subjective Absolutely. thing anyway. I completely agree. And listen, we're lucky enough to, to live in, in a, a part of the world where you can see things like that. And that's not always been the case. And, and it continues to not be the case in certain parts of the world. And that's the whole point of literature is that it gets you talking. Whether you like it or you don't like it, it gets people talking. And, and particularly some, someone like Ernest Hemingway and, and Philip K. Dick and all the authors that, that we've talked about, they get conversations going. And I think that's what the best authors do. They get people talking about it away from the books. You sit and read it. You enjoy it. You tell mates. You tell people. You talk to each other. And you say, this is why I like it. Or indeed, this is why I didn't like it. It's interesting, on, on that question, it, it just reminded me of uh, Graham Hunter, who was one of the guests, and when it was a book he couldn't be paid to get, read again, he actually picked Shakespeare because of memories from school, but he also said he'd love to invent a time machine, travel back in time and give Shakespeare Elmer Leonard's rules of writing and say, that's what you need to follow. <laughs> I always remember there's a, there was the Blackadder special that I remember they showed at the Millennium Dome. Blackadder back and forth and he invents a time machine and he goes back with Baldrick. God, I can't remember who the actor is that plays Shakespeare, but he does, he beats Shakespeare up at one point and he says, this is for every second year uh, student who'd never found a joke in The Merchant of Venice <laughs> or uh, much about nothing. It's the truth, it genuinely is the truth, but again, it's, well, it's part of the education system. And that. But I also think, I mean, 
Let's say on that particular question, it is one that people agonise over more than any other. But at least, as I say, I think you've, you've, you've heard your bets with just choosing dead authors, so you're okay. Nobody's coming after you. Uh, I'm a lot cleverer than I thought. There you go. <laughs> we are on to the last question now, and it's either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading, and you've given us a couple of choices, and both of the authors are still alive. Hurrah. So the first one is, uh, is a guy who I hadn't, I hadn't been aware is a, a Scottish writer called Robert J. Harris, who has written, which again really intrigues me, has written a, a Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Crimson. It's an interesting concept that's happened in recent years of the actual original author has, has passed away, but the kind of legacy and the, the character yeah. was almost passed on, the baton's passed on to, to other writers. I'm actually good friends with Bob, and he very kindly let me chair the launch of this book earlier this month, and we were chatting about it. So it's a Sherlock Holmes novel set in the 1940s in war-torn London, and Holmes is on the case of what's believed to be a copycat killer of Jack the Ripper, essentially. So someone going about wartime London, causing all kinds of chaos and what have you. What's very, very interesting about it is it's Sherlock Holmes, but it's not your Victorian Sherlock Holmes. It's, it's Sherlock Holmes as portrayed by Basil Rathbone in the 1940s Universal movies. So that I think there's 12 Universal movies portrayed by Basil Rathbone. And, and a lot of people, when they think of Sherlock Holmes, that's who they think of. So it's taking that sort of Arthur Conan Doyle character, but also taking a version of that, a portrayal of that character that was transposed to war-torn London. It is proper kind of boys' own adventure stuff. Bob's a fantastic writer, a very, very accomplished writer for children and for adults. And he is a massive Sherlock Holmes fan. And when you read the novel, it reads, first and foremost, it reads like an ode to Conan Doyle. But also, it's still got that kind of sparkle of someone as talented as Bob is, but someone who also takes the property very, very seriously and very, very, very dear to his heart. And so you've got that kind of almost lightning in a bottle with it. It's a subject matter that the author truly adores but also it's a fantastic writer writing a great adventure story with a character that we're all incredibly familiar with. And we chatted about this, a character like Sherlock Holmes, everybody's got their own vision of it, of who that is and, and what you like from a Holmes. So I watched Enola Holmes on Netflix, which is, it's based on a series of books. I, I can't remember who the, who the author is, unfortunately, but it's based on a series, I think, young adult books where it's meant to be Sherlock and Mycroft Holmes' younger sister Enola, and it's searching for their mother. But Henry Cavill plays Sherlock Holmes in the film. And for want of a better expression, it's just Henry Cavill in a 19th century suit. He's not playing a, an iteration of Holmes. But then again, you know, again, it's going back to what we're talking about with, with Hemingway and Philip K. Dick and things like that. It's completely subjective. And a character like Holmes has been portrayed so many times in film, on screen and, and in literature. Everyone's got their own imagination that, that conjures up what they think of. What's good about this book, what I, what I thoroughly enjoyed about this book is that it's, it's set its own timeline. It's doesn't follow the same paths of the Conan Doyle, just moving them, you know, transposing them a hundred years into the future. The characters themselves, while they are still Holmes and Watson uh, and Lestrade and things like that, they've still got their own quirks that are endemic of their time and, and, and stuff. It's just a genuinely great thriller adventure novel, perfect for this time of the year. And, and I was lucky enough to get a chance to, to read it early. Because I was wondering, obviously, first of all, from a, a writer's point of view, there must be a certain level of trepidation because you're tackling like a real classic figure of literature. Yeah. Was it something he's just, is he just able to do that or, or was there an estate that he was having to well, work with? I asked him that in terms of that trepidation as a writer because it's, it's something that terrifies me. I always, always, always remember what James Cameron said. He did a series of interviews, I think, for Film 4 about 10 years ago. He, he talks about when he was chosen to direct the sequel to Alien, Aliens, 
And of course, he was a very, very different director to Ridley Scott, much more action-oriented than Ridley Scott's horror. And he always said that this was a no-win situation for me because if it's a success, if Aliens is a success, which it was and is, eh, I would get none of the credit because it's Ridley's creation. But if it's terrible, it'll be completely my fault. And I said that to Bob. I asked him about it because it's something that's always, me as a writer, I've always been a bit eh, apprehensive about writing another character, you know, writing whoever, writing a Sherlock Holmes novel or writing a Batman or Superman or, or X-Men or what have you, you know, you've got a whole fandom there of people that are so dedicated to these types of characters that no matter what you do, you're not going to please everyone. For my part, I think it's a great novel. I think it's a great 1940s action-adventure mystery novel. It's also a great Sherlock Holmes novel because, you know, I know that he's a massive fan of it. He's a talented writer. He's, he's been able to do this in terms of his ability to do these things. But I think you could read it. I mean, you could genuinely read it not as a Sherlock Holmes fan and, and still take great fun in it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great. It's a good laugh as well. And the, the other book you mentioned uh, was Whispers in the Dark by Chris McDonald. And Chris was a, a previous guest on the podcast. And I've got his first novel, A Wash of Black. It's on my ever-expanding list or, or pile of books to read. And, and Chris, I mean, he was a really good guest on, on the podcast. And even on social media, you had a lot of positive reaction to his writing and uh, have, you, have you read A Wash of Black then and then on to Whispers in the Dark? Again, got a, was very lucky enough to get it for review. Was obviously, that was his debut. And uh, You're right, a lovely guy. I am tipping him to be one of the big, big names in crime fiction. He's a fantastic writer, wonderfully evocative writer. And I'm, I'm in the middle of this one. Again, he very, very kindly let me read it before it's out. His publishing house, Red Dog, they are publishing my cosy crime series starting in December. So I always have to give him a big up because we're kennel pals, as it were. But regardless, he's a brilliant writer. A really, really, a really, really hot prospect in terms of what's coming out. He's also the busiest man in literature. I'm quite convinced that he's the busiest man in literature because he does his own podcast. He's writing Whispers in the Dark. He's also got a cosy mystery series that he's working on as well. And he's a teacher and he's a family man. And he's always pestering me. He's a big Liverpool supporter. He's always winding me up about my Everton heritage. I genuinely don't know where he gets the time. I thought I was bad, but he's on a whole other scale. You mentioned the, the kind of cosy series that for you that's coming out. What can you can elaborate on that and how, what can we expect from so, that? So I've signed up for three books with Red Dog. The first one, Banking and Murders, out December 3rd. And it's a complete departure from my Hellcorp novels. Rather than having the devil running around causing all kinds of chaos and confusion, it's uh, three Glasgow sisters uh, of different generations, 40, 30, and uh, 19, uh, the Parker sisters. And they run a fledgling private detective agency out of the south side of Glasgow. They specialise in cheating partners, so they get a lot of disgruntled wives and husbands that come to them, but business is starting to dry up. So they, they get this one particular case that results in a murder. And it's up to them to save the estranged wife of this banker who's been found dead to clear her name and catch the real culprit. The idea came to me. I, I'm a massive fan of Only Fools and Horses. I always loved the intergenerational comedy that came about with having, you know, your granddad, literally Uncle Albert, Del Boy and Rodney. You know, there's an old man. There's the man who's economically the driving force behind the family. And then you've got the younger sibling. And I always loved the dynamic that that created within that show. And John Sullivan was always able to harness that three-way relationship. My brother and I grew up watching it. And I always say this, in every episode, there's always one scene where it's the three members of the Trotter family, where if you took the screen grab of it, that's the episode. That's what it sums up, whether they've got the dolls or they've got the chandelier or, or what have you. There's always at least one shot. And I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to do something that plays on that sort of intergenerational relationship between the three women. 
because they, they don't get on, but they do get on because they're sisters and they're, they're very, very close sisters, but also that closeness leads to massive friction, as it does in every family. So it's, it's a cosy crime series. I've been sort of glibly saying it's a cosy crime with a bit of bite. I'm in the process of writing the second one at the moment. I'm about maybe just under halfway through the, the first draft of the second one, but the first one's out in December. And for any of uh, Jonathan's friends or family who are listening, uh, you know what you're getting for Christmas now. Absolutely, yeah, they, they buy it themselves, though. That's, that's, that's the rub. <laughs> I always think that that's the great thing, especially if you're writing a crime series or any series and you're already working the, the second book. They, there's a real boost for when the first book comes out because then you're actually seeing the you know, the, the, the end product of all your hard work. And then it, that, I guess that just motivates you further to get the next one done because you obviously you want to build up that audience. I've been absolutely blown away by the response of, of my books. There's a story that I always tell. I was actually quite touched by it. I was quite moved by it. It was maybe about a month, two months after Hellcorp came out in 2018. And a reviewer got in touch with me. They sent me a, a message on Twitter, I think it was. And they said that they'd been in a really, really kind of low funk with reading tried to pick up a whole load of novels and they'd ended up not getting there and it lasted for about 18 months and they saw Hellcourt they had Hellcourt recommended to them by a friend and, and they read it and they read it all the way through and it was the first book that they'd read all the way through in, in 18 months and thankfully she enjoyed it that was a real eye-opening moment for me because first and foremost I was completely flattered that anybody would even bother to get in touch with me about anything that I'd written secondly obviously the content of what it was that she was saying and, and being able to help someone when it comes to reading because at the end of the day as most writers, if not all writers, we're readers ourselves and we know how important reading is to the world and, and to each other. And to know that my work in some way has gone to help someone even just that little bit to get them back in the wagon, as it were, it was a real kind of eye-opening moment. And it just emphasised how much of a privilege it is to be a writer and, and to be a published writer and to know that your work can go out there and, and be read by people and make a difference. And, and again, that kind of comes back to my thing with charity short stories is that making a palpable difference, hopefully trying to make a palpable difference by using the platform that, that I've been given to do a bit of good work for a very, very good cause. It was interesting, there was a, I've only just skimmed the article the other day, but Hilary Mantel was busy, I think it was in the Guardian, and she was talking about how the life of a writer, it's not really enjoyable, that's almost kind of really the negative sides of it. And I always feel, we've yeah. talked about some authors today who, you know, you talked about Chris McDonald, the busiest man in literature. You know, if you look at your, your, your full-time work, you know, impending parenthood, then you're writing as well, I think you have to enjoy it. I mean, and I, I'm, I'm never convinced of, obviously she's in a position where she can go on and moan about it, but I, I just always think people read that and go, really? Go and do something else then. Oh, I, I read that article myself and it's the latest in a, in a kind of number of sound bites that have come from Hillary. You know, she said, I think a couple of months ago that, you know, that was it. She was done with historical fiction, which is fine. I mean, obviously it's entirely up to her what she wants to write. The Wolf Hall novels and things like that, they, they're massive successes. She is absolutely entitled to write what she wants. I thought the tone of that article in particular didn't do her any favours. Whether that's what she said or what she didn't say, you know, we, we'll never know or what she meant. We'll never know, obviously. But you're absolutely right if, if you don't enjoy it. I mean, one of, one of the other reasons that I decided to kind of move towards Cozy for my kind of next books is just the challenge. It's keeping me on my toes. It's keeping me, you know, I'm, I'm trying a whole new subgenre of crime, which is exciting, you know, and also, you know, you approach it with a different kind of angle. You take a different slant in terms of how you portray the characters and, and what you can say and what you can have your characters say because of it being a, a very, very different, you know, still within the crime umbrella, but a, a different type of crime novel. You've got to enjoy it. And I think, I think writers who enjoy what they're writing, I think that comes across in the books and short stories and the poetry that they do. I think readers pick up on that. I know that I pick up on it as a reader, but I think readers can always tell that if the authors had an absolute blast and thoroughly enjoyed every minute of writing that novel. Well, sadly, Jonathan, we've just about come to the end of the podcast. 
And as I say, if any of Jonathan's friends or family are listening, you now have to buy his book. He's not going to give you it as a Christmas present. Well, listen, uh, it's been great talking to you about uh, some of your favourite and not-so-favourite books. And best of luck with, with everything that's coming up. The, 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 obviously, the charity short story, which uh, if either on Amazon or, or Bain, uh, you can check that out. And then, obviously, the novel coming out just before Christmas. What the title of that, again, is? That's Banking on Murder. Banking on Murder, and that's Red Dog who are publishing that just in the, at the start of December. Yeah. So fingers crossed uh, that everything goes well. But listen, it's been it's been really good chatting to you today on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. An absolute delight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at readallabout20, on Instagram at readallaboutitpodcast, or you can send an email to readallaboutit at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.